Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. William Germano, author of From Dissertation to Book. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dana. I'm delighted to be here. We're so thrilled to have you on. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Ah, okay. Um, I've had a really, really strange career. Um, I, I'm one of those uh, first generation to college kids. And uh, I was an English major as an undergrad and went on to grad school and did a PhD in English, but uh, found that publishing had more doors open than academia did when I finished up. And I started working in publishing. I started at universe, at uh, Columbia University Press. I had gone to Columbia as, under, as an undergrad um, and learned uh, a heck of a lot uh, and had to very quickly there. Uh, I was editor-in-chief there after a few years and uh, then left to go to the company that now trades under the name Routledge. It had various names over the almost 20 years I was there. Um, and... Uh, if anyone, if any of your listeners are thinking about scholarly publishing as either a, a next step in their own careers, or I, I really dislike the idea alternative career, a career is a career, whatever career you have, um, the work in scholarly publishing is incredibly stimulating. Uh, whether you're working in the marketing department, uh, in promotion, in copywriting, or as a commissioning editor, and this is probably also true for design, but I'm not a designer, so I don't want to speak. For for those guys. Anyway, I did that. Uh, so I spent almost 30 years in publishing and uh, life changes. Other things happen. Um, and I had the great good fortune to be um, uh, invited to apply for a, a job as dean at uh, the Cooper Union in New York, where I teach now. Uh, and the greater good fortune to be selected for it. And I was dean there for 11 years of humanities and social sciences. And that was my first academic job. Uh, and then I finished up uh, 11 years, a long time to dean. Uh, and uh, I took on the the position of, of professor. And that's that's what I've been. I've been professing for the last several years at, at Cooper Union. Uh, I teach uh, a range of courses uh, in the humanities uh, uh, on strange topics. They're 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 more like networks. Uh, just finished up a course on thinking about the North and South Pole, uh, but otherwise, in the fall, I'll teach a course on puppets and robots, which is really a course on are you human and how do you know. Um, and my students at at Cooper are all non majors, so they're. Um, students in engineering, art, or in architecture. It's a very focused undergraduate college. Um, but that puts a lot of pressure on me as a teacher to figure out, do I have something to say? Do I have something useful for them to do and to make and think about in my classes? Uh, I've, I've trained myself to think about the so what of my teaching in ways that I might not have if I were the chair of a English department at an R1 and I had fabulous majors, all of whom wanted to be English professors. That's a very different kind of being in the world. And I think there's a connection to to writing uh, this business of thinking about the so what of your teaching and the so what of what you're putting on the page. I hope that's some useful segue into what we can talk about this morning. Um, yes, no, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Um, and so the book from dissertation to book is in its second edition, which came out, the second edition came out in 2013. So, so when I ask you this question, I, I recognize that we're going back a bit when I ask what inspired you to write the book in the first place. And, and the first edition came out in 2005. Um, and as I said to you before we recorded, um, I kind of think this is a staple of the field at this point. Um, I do like to, to mention to, to listeners, so I'll do it real quickly here, that um, although we don't know each other, um, I am familiar with your work and I did use um, your book 
when I was um, editing my dissertation, it was a recommendation, um, the only recommendation I got for for books to you know to to look at. So um, in this sort of sub series on writing that that I'm doing, I wanted to highlight this this book. So um, back to the question of what inspired you to write it in the first place. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to answer your question, but I want to remember to come back to the comment you made because you made me think of something that I have not said before, and I I do want to say about the process of uh, finding useful things while you're, while you're revising your, your work at the doctoral level. Um, I was working in publishing and I had um, decided that I wanted to, I, I guess, share the stuff I thought I knew. Uh, and I'll be happy to say more about what I think that means <laughs> in a bit. Uh, but when I was working at Routledge, I, I wrote a book called Getting It Published uh, with the Kind of in your face subtitle of uh, 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 um, a guide for anyone serious about serious books. I didn't want to use the word academic in the title um, because there are a lot of people who are writing really, really serious, really interesting things who might not say that they consider themselves or academics because they have other kinds of careers. Um, in any case, I, I worked on that in the very end of the 90s and published it, I think Chicago published it in 2001, and that's in its third edition now. And uh, the editor with whom I was then working, I think, suggested to me uh, that there was a, a need in the market for a book that more specifically looked at dissertations. <clears throat> and I couldn't find anything that I thought did the job so um, I thought, okay, I guess I can do this. And <laughs> I sat down and began writing what I understood to be the problem, drawing a lot on the range of uh, first books that I had and my colleagues, my editorial teams at both Columbia University Press and at Routledge uh, had brought to press. Uh, and the kinds of conversations that you have in a publishing house about what makes something, what makes something viable, what makes a first scholarly book uh, able to stand up and speak, and um, that's kind of what from dissertation to book is. It's also meant to be, and this is, I, I guess, if I have a trademark, that's it, um, a kind of serious but casual enough uh, writing voice that is um, positioned to be as encouraging as possible. Uh, it's really, really tough. I think everybody who works in academia I, at, on any level know that it's, it's, it's just difficult because you're, you're surrounded by incredibly smart people. Um, uh, and, I, and I am in no means limiting that to the faculty, uh, incredibly smart people. And, and so there's a sense of competition or also a question, questioning one's own authenticity, one's own capacity to say things. Uh, am I really smart enough to talk about this on the page when there are all these other great scholars who have thought about it? Um, Self-doubt is the one thing I can count on when I'm speaking to an academic. And that comes through in dissertations, which are very, very cautious documents. Um, and so what I've tried to do um, is, without scolding people, uh, give them tools to think with so that they can work out for themselves what kinds of a message they have for the world, because I think that's what happens in a book. Hmm. Well, and the book is a very um, candid look um, at what this process looks like on the back end, which is what we'll talk about today, which is, um, you know, part of the value of, of your perspective. I mean, there's so much there, but definitely your your publishing background. So, you know, while we're still kind of getting into this a bit at the base level, how is dissertation revision distinct from other kinds of scholarly revising or writing? And so like, why did it warrant its own book? Like what, what's the distinction here? I, I think if I had had, had the nerve uh, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I guess it was, when did I, when did I begin writing this? When I began writing it in 04, 03, uh, the first edition. Um, I would have tried to write a broader book about revising writing. I wasn't ready to write that book, but I knew 
I had looked at thousands and thousands of proposals. I, I, I think I calculated at some point that I, at, at one way or another, have, have laid my hands on or my eyes on maybe 30 or 40,000 proposals because one publishes a lot of books at a large house. And um, when you have an editorial team, everything has to come under your eyes. Even if, even if I'm not the commissioning editor working on a project, I need at least to look at what the editor submits when she or he presents something to committee. So I, I, I have what I sometimes describe as really deep, really superficial knowledge about a lot of fields. Uh, you know, I've never took a course in sociology, but I've had to sign off on and work with uh, scholars and with uh, editors who were publishing the social sciences, for example. I'm not a historian. I've worked with historians. I am not an anthropologist. I There are I, there are more things that I am not than, I, than that I am. And I think that's probably the situation of almost every editor that I know. Um, but the dissertation really does come uh, with so many uh, uh, limitations and cautions. Uh, it's a very, very specific way of documenting uh, one's capacity to do scholarship. It's not a book. It's a genre of its own. It's a way of authenticating oneself uh, and a way of demonstrating that, yes, I can do this. It's a bit like passing a driver's test. Um, and, uh, and that's fine. I, I, have no, I have no problem with the authenticating uh, component of dissertation writing. Um, but if that were the only thing it's worth doing, then I think we've kind of miss the boat. Um, uh, unfortunately, for many, many years, I, uh, well, maybe that's an overstatement. Uh, for many years, people imagined that you corrected typos and then you sent a dissertation off to a publishing house. And if the publishing house had um, 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 room for you on their list, then your project would be taken on and that would be the end of it and you'd have a book. Um, if that were ever true, it hasn't been true in my working lifetime. Uh, and the reason it isn't, uh, a, it isn't a, a game plan is because of you and me and every other person who's out there reading books. We read for reasons. We don't read because someone happened to publish something. We're looking for things. We, we, we have our own needs as readers. And um, the dissertation needs to be revised so that it becomes a book. But it's, it's a transformation out of one genre into another. Um, I, I wanted to mention, because you, you brought it up, and I, I, I didn't have a chance to comment on it in our brief chat before we began recording, uh, a, a kind of a shout out to your uh, dissertation committee or your advisor for recommending my book, not merely gratitude for doing so, but honestly, um, dissertations will become better, and I think are much better than they were certainly 40 years ago, um, as people who direct dissertations commit themselves to knowing about best practice for revising. Um, it's not enough, I'm, and now I'm speaking to the dissertation directors of the world right now, <laughs> It's not enough to be a brilliant and uh, highly published um, scholar in your own field and a great teacher, although you, you, one would be fortunate to have all those things in a dissertation director. You also want the person who is directing the dissertation to have thought about writing. Um, this is a kind of a drumbeat that I've been <laughs> playing for years now, uh, and I've, I, I'll sort of lay this out because it's kind of the a good example of the kind of way I, I think and talk about these things. Um, if you're teaching anything and you're requiring any written work from your student, you're teaching writing. Now, if you work in, in any of the literatures, you'll say, oh, sure, of course, we're, that's what we do, literature. But that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are in religious studies or people who are in political science, or people who are in um, 
uh, working in economic history or psychology, uh, fields in which the teaching of writing might be misunderstood as outsourceable to the English department or the writing center or some other um, uh, angelic band that would turn one's students into great writers. And my own take is we're past that moment. That that train is left. Um, we need to have people who are teaching in every field stop to think about what they're asking their students to produce and basically boning up for themselves on how to revise, how to write, how to think most effectively about taking research theories, enthusiasms, and translating them onto the page for the purposes of engaging readers. Um, In other words, how to make a narrative, uh, making a narrative out of what one has studied and thought about. It's not the usual way to imagine what a scholarly book is, but I'm completely convinced that this is what's necessary now. Well, I... I don't want to linger here too long, but I will. I appreciate your comment, and I, um, I think listeners know I have had many people on the show, including um, some of my mentors from my, um, you know, defense, and um, because I feel very fortunate to have. I realized it at the time, but with more time and distance and experience, I'm realizing even more so what a wonderful, um, fortunate experience I had in the mentors that I had and the scholars that I had as mentors. And most of my dissertation defense was about what's next as a book. Um, And so when I set out on that process, I reached out to my outside examiner who was on my committee and who was, you know, very well connected in publishing. And I, I said, well, what do I do? Cause you, and you write about this in the book. It's a lonely process afterwards. Like nobody's getting, it's nobody's job anymore to like help you, you write better or well, or review your stuff. And so you're kind of on your own. And I reached out and we had a lovely conversation and she directed me to that book, uh, to your book. And so, you know, the, I, I feel like I sat down, I feel like I knew you, I sat down with your book and I really started mapping out my, my revision process. Um, but I will say also as a shout out to my committee, my chair what you talk about with writing is what she did a lot of. I mean, she said my first class with her, she sent me to the writing center because I was doing that very traditional, I came out of psychology, kind of third person, distant, subjective writing. And she was like, that's not going to do. And all throughout my dissertation, she would say to me, jazz it up, Dana, jazz it up. Like it was too, you know, it wasn't, it was, there wasn't enough there. And by the end it was, it was, it was really good. So I, I, as someone who I feel like got that level of, um, instruction on writing about how to how to write, you know, for in a more interesting narrative way, this tell the story, whatever it is that you're telling in, in a compelling way. Um, I agree with you. And I think it's, um, it's only served me, you know, in my in my career at, uh, at this point. So I just wanted to just to comment on that. But um, so for for people who are kind of beginning this process, um, you say, you know, in the beginning, before doing anything or devoting any time to revising, you say it's important to know what you have, and you suggest readers ask themselves a series of questions. So, what are some of those important questions that need to be addressed at that early stage? When when you're looking at your work, you can't, uh, especially the dissertation, the day after the the day after the, after the, <laughs> the morning, defense, the morning after probably the morning after. It's probably not the moment to say, okay, let me see. I'll start cutting right away. Uh, there, there is the big principle I think in revising a dissertation is acknowledging, as humbling as this is, for almost everybody who writes a dissertation is that there is a way in which the dissertation is often the biggest book report you'll ever write. You, your job has been to find something that interests you that has not been exhaustively researched and published about. And then your job is to look at everything that's been done. I mean, if you're writing on Shakespeare, you're not going to write, read everything that's been published because you'd spend the rest of your life doing that. Um, but you might, do, you might read everything that's been published in the last 50 years and selectively the material of, of historical importance. Um, but what one comes away with, if one can look clearly at 
at what you have on the page, at one has uh, on the page uh, on the completion of the dissertation, it is a <clears throat> synthetic, in a good sense, a synthetic overview of of the arguments, the debates, the concerns that other people have researched, um, and that you will then have further augmented with your primary research and your own thought, which might be a fairly small thing in terms of in terms of the the big picture of this dissertation, um, but there's enough there that you've brought of your own to justify your committee and your institution validating it as the completion of the doctoral work and as a promise, the promise that your dissertation offers of your own capacity to go further. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of things, including an audition. Um, when you're thinking about a book from that dissertation, the power uh, dynamic shifts. Your idea becomes the centerpiece of the book manuscript. Everything that's been written about it, on your of your everything that's been written on your subject, becomes supporting documentation for your idea. In other words, you kind of step out of the shadows. Now there are dissertations where it's possible to have someone of, of uncommon uh, writerly uh, capacity manage all this right off the bat, but that's so rare. I, I don't like to say, well, you know, if you're a great writer, you don't have to think about it this way. I think even great writers uh, will think about things this way, and that's why they're great writers. <laughs> They've already figured out how to how to mm-hmm. ima- how, how to understand what the weaknesses are. But I, I want to come back again to this idea of uh, sort of the power shift. If if you could see me, you would see my hands sort of doing a scales and moving mm-hmm. my hand. One scale, one one cup of the scale goes up, one cup of the scale goes down. You have to become the uh, the 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 investigator, the the person who is narrating and proposing and challenging the reader. It's your ideas that are the center of the project. That doesn't mean you're writing immodestly or saying, I got a great idea, you have to pay attention. Um, there are so many ways in which a writer can both um, intrigue the reader, inspire the reader. And, be, and I want to be absolutely certain that inspiring the reader is part of the objective of writing even an academic book. Um, you want that reader to feel that you understand that she or he is out there. Um, that the that the book itself, the dissertation might have been uh, the documentation of all your research, the proof that you knew how to do the research. The book needs to step outside, get some sunlight, some fresh air, and say, okay, I have all that stuff indoors. What do I now do? I need to arrange it so that the reader can make use of it. And if the reader can't make use of something, I don't need to put it in. Most dissertations are much longer than the book that will result from a thorough and productive revision, and that's okay. Um, I, I, I say in in from dissertation to book, and I'm going to rephrase it because I don't have the words exactly in my head at this moment, um, that the length of a manuscript should be um, the result of necessary decisions. It should not be a precondition of a of the product so that you're not going to say, Oh, my job is to turn this into a 400 page book. No one should have that as a goal. What you should have is an understanding of what you want the book to achieve. And that the, and that the length, the extent of your project is directly determined by the objectives you're setting up for it. We're talking with Bill Germano about his book from dissertation to book. Um, so one of your stated goals of the book is to help young scholars make a decision, find direction, and go. Part of that process involves charting options. So what are the basic options available, you know, sort of after the dissertation defense is complete and you've, you know, maybe the next morning or the next week or the next month are looking back at this piece of work? 
Ah, uh, yeah. Well, the first, the next morning, you should do something entirely different. Go bike riding, <laughs> swim, yeah. walk your dog, uh, <clears throat> call Aunt Pearl and tell her it's been a long time since you've spoken. But I, I would, a couple of weeks later, <clears throat> when perhaps the, the, uh, uh, <laughs> the excitement or possibly the trauma of the dissertation <laughs> is behind you. Um, you want to do whatever you can to take a hard look at the thing you have. Um, and this is, of course, the challenge every writer has. You're producing something and you need to be able to see it, which is not the same thing as having written it. Um, and the dissertation feels as if it should already be a thing, some kind of a thing. But as we were saying earlier, it needs to be transformed from its genre and its very specific disciplinary uh, structure into uh, the kind of work that a reader might say, wait, this looks really interesting. And wait, this is a writer who's writing for me even though it's a specialist subject. So um, in From Dissertation to Book, I, I mapped out uh, eight basic options. I mean, the first is the sort of the famous do not resuscitate. You've written the dissertation. It was good enough to get you a degree and you want to go on with something else. In fact, you may not even have the ambition to become a professional academic which, by the way, is totally okay. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean that um, you're not smart. But people make other decisions. Um, some people want to change careers or want to find other things they want to do with their lives. That's all. All of that is okay. Um, the dissertation, however, is often uneven in terms of its quality that there is not infrequently a single chapter that is heads, uh, um, head and neck above everything else in it. It'll be the one chapter that your, your committee wants to talk more about. That's the chapter you want to pull. You want to look at very, very carefully and say, should I try to submit that to a major journal? Again, I'm going to say major journal because you should aim high for whatever you want to publish. Um, uh, as for university presses, I think they're all terrific, um, and um, people will have their own sense of where they would like to be published. But you want to be published with a house that is enthusiastic about your work. I think that's the most important thing in selecting a publisher. Um, sometimes there is more than one chapter that feels as if it can get up and walk on its own. Um, two chapters would be great. Three chop chapters, fantastic. Should you take three chapters and two or three chapters and publish them? You can. But if you do do that, and that might be the right decision for you, it does have consequences for publishing the whole work. Because if you have six chapters and you've published three of them in major journals, uh, it might be that you've given away or put out there the very best work that you have in this manuscript, and that might make it more difficult for an editor to say, well, we'd like to publish this, but you've actually put the work out there. Um, that's not the end of your career, that you haven't done something really dangerous, uh, damaging to yourself. But it might be a way of reminding yourself that you can produce more ideas. You have more that you can write about, more questions that you can ask. Um, you can, of course, take the option of just sending the dissertation out to a publisher. I don't recommend that at all, but I've seen it often enough happen. Um, you might also revise it very lightly. It happens to be a particularly strong dissertation. You've written it with, with very thoughtful, responsible guidance from your director and your committee. You've got wonderful responses from your readers. You're in a very, very lucky position. It doesn't need a lot. And you can do some light revision and move forward with, move forward from that point. Alternatively, you might find that there's so much that's required for you to put it into book shape. You need to do quite a, quite a serious review. And if you do, and you want to make that review, what I would urge is that you set a time for yourself. If you're going to take six months or 12 months to review it, 
then make that the goal. Don't say, oh, I'm going to get to it eventually. Decide whether you're going to make that investment of time. And once you've done it, set the clock, set the calendar. Tell yourself, okay, this is uh, December by the end of August. By August 15th, I need to have this com uh, completely, review, uh, completely revised. Sometimes uh, the dissertation isn't one thing. Sometimes it is the partial development of two reasonably well-related ideas. Um, and that what you've got here are kind of two seedlings that might be developed. Uh, it, it is not tautological that what's in a dissertation must be what is in a book in terms of its subject matter or um, uh, extent. Uh, sometimes the first four chapters really is the heart of a book. You can take those first four chapters and grow them into a full-length work. Um, and as for the other chapters, maybe they belong in journals, or maybe they themselves constitute the beginning. They're, they're another seedling, and that could be built uh, on further. Um, and the, the last option is, is putting it aside, not because you're not interested in it, because you have other things you want to write about. Um, I, on many occasions, I've met people who are working on uh, dissertations that either I wasn't interested in pursuing in book form, or they that or the um, the um, the author was not interested in pursuing in book form, and that's because the author had lots and lots of ideas, lots of enthusiasms wanted to immediately turn to something she was working on now or an idea she had or the successful presentation at a, her disciplinary conference, probably on Zoom, given the world we're in right now, um, and had a great idea for a book. Or, 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 and this is the part that editors play. Sometimes an editor will turn to an author whose first manuscript, whose dissertation has been submitted and say, you know, I'm not I'm not seeing a publishable book in this, except for chapter six, where you've done this. Hey, how about, would you consider writing a short book for us on this subject? Um, and that can and has become um, a mechanism by which some wonderful work has been produced because the author, him or herself, might not have thought at an early career stage, do I really have uh, do I ha really have the nerve, let's call it courage, to write on a subject that I have not been studying in great detail for the last six years? And yet, that's what writers do. Uh, they get excited about things, even scholars, uh, scholarly writers do. They get excited about things and they say, yeah, this is the moment, this is the thing I want to be working on. So there are many, many ways of thinking about revising the dissertation. I guess the best thing to do is to say, what can I find in it? What can I find in it? And how do I make the most of what's in it? Hmm. Um, as you talk about in the book, editors are very busy and often make quick choices with what comes across their desks. Um, therefore, it's important to make a great first impression in that brief window of time. For those unfamiliar with the scholarly publishing process, uh, would you explain the series of hurdles, as you call them, each manuscript must clear? Yeah, I mean there there are lots of there are lots of steps, and each house will have its own uh, each scholarly house will have its its own process. Trade trade houses, if you're submitting a project to Penguin or to uh, Simon and Schuster, will have different processes. But so I'm really talking about uh, university presses and the commercial academic presses. Um, the processes uh, will be similar. You will, as an author, are writing to uh, the editorial, the editorial department, um, which I, you know, urge people to find out who the editor is. Um, at university presses, editors expect that you will address uh, an inquiry to the editor who is responsible for the for the author for the writer's field. Um, I'm deeply suspicious about publishing houses that say inquiries should go to uh, editorial inquiries, which sounds just so 
it's sort of it's sort of uh, um, depressing in the way that I'm thinking of the Dickens's circumlocution office. Um, what you've got is uh, uh, a way of, of, of screening inquiries. Um, better to find out who the history editor is at at Chicago. Who who's doing the work on um, uh, the American South uh, at the, the University of, of Texas and and so forth. Um, uh, you want to write something that makes the editor say, this is a person who has an idea and is able to express it clearly and with an understanding that it's for a readership. Um, that, sound, that may sound like nothing, but it's very easy to write a letter that makes that gives the impression that the writer's most important um, uh, subject is the writer, him or herself. I've written this book. Let me tell you all about it. Well, that's not exactly what the editor wants to hear. Uh, the editor wants to know what the book is as quickly and as clearly as possible, how it fits into what is happening in the scholarly in the scholarly community and indeed in the world the world of now and um, a little bit about its status uh, whether it's complete whether it's uh, almost finished whether uh, it is an idea those are the kinds of things that an editor depends upon in in the very very first contact um, but an editor will need to uh, decide whether to pursue the project, to invite in more more material, which these days is much more likely to be sent electronically, and and then to read it through. The editor has to make a bunch of choices. Does it fit the list of the publishing house? Does the project feel economically viable? The editor will have to make decisions about what the budgeting for, is for a project um, and whether uh, a projection of sales could sustain it uh, uh, financially. You know, there are, um, I'd like to say that there are for-profit publishers and there are not-for-profit publishers, but there are no for-loss publishers. And that um, uh, I've, over the years would encounter an editor who was baffled or rather an author baffled being told the market for this is too small. Um, you you should break this up, take the best pieces of it, put it into journals, and come back with an idea for a different kind of a project. Maybe something stepping back a little bit from your subject, or seeing how you how you can connect it to this conversation or that conversation in your discipline. Um, the editor then needs to have. Uh, uh, outside reviews, as well as inside reviews. That is, the inside review might be talking to other editors, might be talking to the editor, talking to the editor's publishing director or director of the press. Um, in most cases, the project will need to go to one, if not more, um, outside reviewers. Well, the editor will have to listen carefully to those reviews and use those reviews in two ways to give useful advice to the writer and also for the editor to adjust his or her understanding of the project. Because, and, and this is some, something we both know, if you're, if you're an editor, you cannot be yourself the specialist in the manuscript. That an editor is by nature a generalist when it comes to editing um, uh, in a publishing environment. Even if the editor has a PhD, I have a PhD. That doesn't mean I know anything about uh, social anthropology. That's not my field. So I need to send a manuscript in social anthropology out to the social anthropologists that I know or that have been recommended to me and who are kind enough to do the hard work of reviewing the manuscript. Um, that's a hurdle. Um, finally, there is the hurdle of presenting the project to a committee. Uh, usually composed of marketing, financial, administrative, and editorial folks who will need, and production folks, who will need to make an assessment of whether this project 
is doable by that house. And there's no such thing as a book that's publishable by any house. Um, yeah, one might say if the book is published by Harvard, it could be published by Princeton and vice versa um, because they're big houses with resources and they are, are and they're placed to uh, to take um, on a, um, a books in a, in, a, in a range of disciplines. But I think it's really important to know which houses fit you well. Um, so that if you're working in social anthropology, what are the five houses that you depend upon most in terms of uh, making, uh, 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 in terms of finding useful work in your field? And that perhaps is a, a different question as to where to where to send things. Hmm. From the publisher's perspective, you write that weakness in a manuscript can be discussed in terms of four crucial elements audience voice structure and length. So, so to, to dive into voice a little bit, can you talk about how voice operates within analytical writing when objectivity is often the goal? Yeah, it's, uh, it is, it is increasingly, uh, I think apparent that there are, uh, disciplinary, um, constructs that put, um, the writer of a dissertation in a position of conforming to the way someone's field does stuff. If you're a molecular biologist and you're writing a dissertation in molecular biology, um, narrative might not be the thing that you're thinking most about. Um, most of what I've done and what I write about is for uh, the non-technical fields uh, or the non, or rather the non-quantitative uh, fields. Um, I, I, make a, I make a distinction between data-driven and narrative-driven fields. Um, and the social sciences, for example, uh, embrace both. There are fields and sub, subfields within the social sciences that are very much driven by data, and they have to be. But that doesn't mean that the writers working on um, um, urban poverty and have worked with extraordinary, um, um, extraordinary research facilities uh, to clarify for the rest of us the grim realities of patterns of urban uh, poverty in America, uh, that it, it does not mean that the writer of that material, the researcher rather, uh, is incapable of telling us uh, in narrative language what she or he has learned about that research. Um, I, I'd like very much to uh, resist the idea that, rather, let me rephrase that, I resist very much the idea that somehow the uh, notion of data means that what you've written is true, and that when, if you and if you don't have a data-driven <clears throat> manuscript, uh, that means somehow that you've made stuff up. Um, whatever we have, we're in, we're interpreting it. And uh, when I'm working with my, my freshmen, I <clears throat> at least half of whom are in engineering. Uh, I like to work on um, uh, disabusing them of the idea that because there are numbers on the page, they have somehow managed to find um, a, a kind of a perfect, truthful representation of reality. And we step back to talk about what do those numbers represent, what's hidden behind those numbers, who is presenting those numbers, and so forth. These are in 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 a certain way, those are all questions about voice, voices that are hidden, voices that are suppressed, as well as the voice that a writer might 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 present. Um, I think it's really important for scholars to see themselves as writers. That sounds really simple. It's not simple, but it's essential. Um, if you want to write a dissertation to get a degree, and your committee says the research is terrific. Um, it's a little tough to read, but it's brilliant in its way. That might be a signal that you need to do something to make it available to more people. Um, I, and I think it's not 
it shouldn't be as hard as we've as we in the academy have imagined that that it is. Um, shape the work. Don't assume that it's impossible to have a short paragraph. Uh, find a, a voice that sounds like a human who has done the work. This will not make your work weak. It will not make your work sentimental. It will not make your work a romanticization of your study of, say, urban poverty. Um, in fact, the work that I've found uh, most compelling in um, on, on subjects like uh, the study of urban poverty have very much been written by social scientists who see themselves as observers and who use I. Uh, and you know that there's a real human being who's um, done these investigations and is, is presenting, um, um, pre presenting and interpreting uh, a vision of, of lived reality for us. But using scholarly tools to do so, not simply uh, anecdotalizing the suffering of others. Um, I'm not suggesting that one should turn one's dissertation into a form of journalism. Journalism is a wonderful thing if it's done well, but it is not the uh, end goal of a dissertation revision. What is the goal of the dissertation revision is to create out of a kind of raw material something that readers want to spend time with. Um, and it, that, that's, kind of about, that's kind of about shape, and it's about portion control and the density of one's language. Uh, the, the, the decision that has to be made as to how much specialized language you really need, not language that you can hide behind or language that authenticates you as capable of using complicated terms, but what language do you really need and what audience are you writing it for? Um, there's a lot of hiding behind, traditionally there's a lot of hiding behind technical language uh, in order to demonstrate that the writer is capable of, of uh, deploying those terms. And I like to push back against that and say, okay, we all know what you mean here because you're using these terms from, um, I don't know, Lacan or Foucault or, or, or an economic theorist. But can we just stop for a minute and say, do you, do you believe the reader will need some explanation of what you mean here? And if you think the reader is going to need that, put the explanation in. If that term is particularly useful, show why it's useful. Take the time to teach your reader while you're telling your story. That, I think, is... That, I think, should be a big goal, not merely for dissertation revisers, but for scholars working on their second or your third or their, or their tenth book. Hmm. Well, speaking of structure, um, as that is one of the crucial elements um, that you mentioned, um, how do book titles and chapter titles um, play into that and um, play into building structure? And like, why are they important? You spend, you know, several pages in a fair amount of time, you know, unpacking that in, in the book. So can you spend a few minutes talking to us about book uh, chapter, book and chapter titles and structure? Sure, sure. I, I actually have become, <clears throat> become a lot more uh, uh, interested in, in thinking about uh, the structure of the structure of projects. Um, and uh, certainly in the dissertation, what you often have are chapter titles that either uh, directly reflect the origin of, um, of that chapter. If indeed, as we were saying earlier, if indeed that chapter grew out of a seminar paper, it might have a title pretty much like a seminar paper. Um, <clears throat> the titles of chapters can either be descriptive or elusive, allusive in some way. And there are fields in which the allusive title or the arresting title or even the cryptic title is, um, is workable because it understands what the reader is looking for and what the reader will respond to. I, um, I think there's a big range in how to title chapters. I, I tend 
to discourage people from using quotations from important sources as their titles. Although we've all, we've all read articles in our fields or chapters in our fields that do that. But I, I kind of think that's a, a bit of a missed opportunity for the writer not to formulate for herself and in her own words what the chapter is about and what it's trying to do and what signal she wants to give concerning that chapter. But I, I play a mental game with myself when I write, and it's one that I've encouraged um, over the years. I, I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of uh, developmental workshops with scholars who are uh, postdocs and um, new assistant professors and we will, I will read proposals or read descriptions of their work or samples of their work, and we'll talk about structure and what they might usefully do um, going forward. Um, but I, I like the idea of the hidden skeleton. Uh, that is, you're, you're looking at your work, and as you're revising it, let's say you have a 60-page chapter, and the 60-page chapter has no subheads. It's 60 pages of glorious analytic writing, and um, you're trying to figure out, what do I do with this? Well, to return to something we talked about at the beginning of the hour, which is knowing what you have, I, I would suggest that one way of doing that is quite literally to go into that chapter and start throwing subheads in. In other words, give yourself uh, freedom to Put the draft up on your screen. If you're working in hard copy, that's fine, but the screen is probably the easiest place to do this. And say, okay, those I've just read those first seven pages, and I just noticed there's a shift here on page eight. In the middle of page eight, there's a shift. Invent a subtitle. Put it in. Go through the rest of your chapter. You may wind up with six or seven subheads through your chapter. And the purpose of that is to give you a way of looking at what you've done and seeing it in a different light. Because by announcing through a subhead that you've got something for the reader to focus on, almost as if the camera lens were shifting from one angle to another angle, um, you're acknowledging that you've moved from one thing to another. Uh, those kinds of acknowledgments seem to be super important for any kind of revising of writing. And the longer one's work, the longer the, uh, the, the project, the more one needs that as a, as a tool. You can go back in, then look at those subheads and say, well, all right, are these the emphases that I want to make? Uh, an, un, an unspoken uh, goal here would be that a 60-page chapter is already too long. And the subheads being there might be a way of helping you find what you do not need and can move out. You don't throw it away. You put it in a, I'm taking this out right now file, and you make a separate file and you keep stuff. Try not to waste stuff, but don't feel that you have to publish every single lovely paragraph that you've ever produced. Because you don't need to. And coming to the realization that you don't need everything is part of the maturation of a writer, even an academic writer. Now, when you're done, you may see that those subheads you've put in are occasions for you to create new transitions. And frankly, you might, having gone through the whole process of revising that chapter, decide, you know what, I need two subheads. I don't need six or seven. And those two will now more clearly identify the movement of my ideas through this chapter. So um, uh, there are writers for whom you don't need any of those as sort of those skeletal, um, uh, uh, skeletal um, um, interventions. And for others, you do. I, I'm, I, I don't make any judgments about whether or not subtitles, uh, subheads are, not subtitles, sorry, subheads are necessary in a chapter. Um, for many writers, there are, and that's, that's totally fine. The, the, the more trade-oriented a piece of writing is going to be, 
perhaps, perhaps there's less of a necessity for subheads to direct the reader's attention. Um, there, so one other thing I should say about uh, about length um, that my I often was often asked how long should a chapter be, and I you know I felt the question was kind of like how long is a piece of string? It's really really hard to answer the question, but then I realized it's about uh, it, it it's about zitzfleisch. Um, I, I think that a chapter should be something that you can imagine the reader sitting down and reading without having to get up to check a phone or get a cup of coffee or make a, you know, do the shopping or go running around the block. In other words, it should be in its way compelling enough to make someone say, gosh, this is 35 pages and I want to find out what's happening on the next page. I'm only on page 16. That's what you want from the reader. Uh, And if you think of writing something as if it's a kind of a performance that you want to hold people's attention, that's a way to think about the length of a chapter, even even the revision of a dissertation chapter. I said at the beginning of the hour again that the length that you're working on should not, the length in and of itself should not be a goal. Whatever the length of what you're doing, whatever the length of what you're writing as a scholar, it should be the need of the inquiry, the need of the material and of the questions you're pursuing that should determine how long the project is and how long its individual elements are, not some artificial um, um, imposition. That said, a 60-page chapter, an 80-page chapter is feels as if it's crying out for uh, help me. Uh, it wants it wants the writer to come back in and say, "Please, please make me make this better. Have mercy on me and have mercy on my reader." On the reader. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're getting close to time, so just um, kind of as we wind down, and this is a very broad question, but um, what is good writing, and what does it do? Yeah, I mean, good writing is writing that takes the risk to be honest about what the writer believes and wants to communicate. It doesn't hide. It's generous. It's generous and it's humble because the writer is acknowledging that she or he doesn't have all the answers. But, 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 and this is the thing about academic writing that I love. The writer might know, I don't have all the answers, but I have questions and I have new questions for you. Um, I, I tell this to my students as well, and I, I say the same thing to freshmen that I'll, I'll say to people who are working on their uh, revising a dissertation, that the capacity to generate a question might be the greatest gift that you have as a writer to your reader. And what you're doing in that, even in acknowledging, I can't solve this, but I've shown you something. You know, you either you're either there are projects that are going to solve X, uh, and there are going to be projects that are going to say, "I never knew there was an X, and the reader didn't know there was an X." But here's an X. Here's a problem that we can now formulate and think about in new ways. And I think a definition of good writing, especially good writing for academics, is writing that embraces the reader, knows the reader is there acknowledges the reader's intelligence and the reader's capacity to extend whatever the writer is writing about beyond the limits of what has been written here. Mm. Thank you. And so final question here before we wrap, Um, any final thoughts or encouragements to leave our listeners with, especially those who are on the brink um, of taking on this this process of revision, um, or even their advisors uh, who are about to send their own new class of of newly minted PhDs into the world with their dissertations in hand. Right. Well, I mean, I think I think it's a it's a big burden to advise uh, to advise dissertations, and I'm always happy to talk to people who are doing that, especially. Uh, when there's an opportunity to encourage them to to think and to converse with one another across disciplines at their institution, which is something that rarely happens, about writing, about what the goals of writing can be and should be 
especially now. And as for writers, I would say, you can do it. It's absolutely possible. Uh, but you've got to be brave enough to say it may not be a book. This one may not be a book, but I have articles I can make of it. Um, and the final thing is to believe that you're always going to have more ideas. People get stuck with revising dissertations sometimes because they're fearful they will never have another idea as good as the one they, that's in their dissertation. And I, I, without knowing an, an individual, I will say, look, you're smart enough and you have complicated enough mind to have produced this dissertation. You, will, you have other ideas. What you, need are the, what you need is the opportunity and the time to extend those ideas and develop them. But you have to have confidence in, in that capacity because that's what's going to drive you. That, that's what's going to drive you forward. Hmm. Thank you. Bill, thank you for being on the show today and discussing your book from dissertation to book with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Dana. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.